We are in week two of our grand experiment of teaching church history from the pulpit. Now, normally you got to go to seminary or go to some Bible college to get a boring class like this. But no, we will bring the boring right to you right here from the pulpit. Normally it's, you know, as you know, my style, which is scripture kind of only I do very few topical series. Um, unfortunately, when we address the book of Revelation this year, as we are entering into this brand new theme of the year of Revelation, there's two things that we need to know. One of them is church history. Uh, so the second one we need to know is background on how to read prophecy. And that's going to be our following series right after this. So there's a lot of prep just to get to the book of Revelation right behind you, Brian. And One of the reasons why we need to know church history so bad is that in the year of Revelation, I want us all to begin to look at things differently. How can we open up our eyes and begin to see um, something from a different perspective? Why are we doing church the way we're doing it? Why do we believe what we believe? Where did all this stuff come from? Why, when in the world did we break from this church? Why do we have so many denominations? All this kind of stuff kind of needs to get answered. I would hope that you at least have some knowledge of that, but the majority of us Do not. When I entered into a church history class in seminary, I was absolutely clueless. I had no idea. And so I had to come up to speed really, really fast. Um, A lot of you have asked me for my notes uh, from last week because I asked you guys for feedback. A lot of you guys gave me feedback. Remember I said, this is a grand experiment. How about giving me some feedback? You guys okay with this? Um, I only got really a couple bits of constructive criticism. All the rest was, I'm so excited about the series. So I'm going to keep going in that. It's only three parts, so it's not going to be too long. But I would hope that you continue to give me feedback. I'm very open to what you have to say. Um, But a lot of you want my notes, so always feel like you can get those if you ask them. But let's let's begin a little bit here with a kind of a disclaimer or a a warning. Quick show of hands. How many of you grew up in the Catholic Church or are currently Catholic? You would consider yourself Catholic. Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of you. Um, We actually have a very large number. That's probably the largest denominational background, perhaps that that is that has come into our church over the years. Um, Tonight. We're going to be studying something that should be rather dramatic for you, those of you that raised your hand. There's a major reason why I'm not wearing a collar. There's a major reason why I'm not called a priest, and that all occurred in a very small area of history. Um, If you remember last week, I covered 1,400 years in 50 minutes, okay? That's about as fast as you could possibly do history. This week, we're slowing everything down, and in the same amount of time, we'll only be covering 200 years. The 1450 to 1650, because everything changed in the church during that time, certainly from our perspective. What occurred was what we know as the Reformation. Now, what I have for you tonight is I'm going to be covering five major guys, seven major movements, but only one serious main theme. Why do we break from the Catholic Church? That's really the heart of what we're going to figure out tonight. It was so significant, and there's such a great impact on America today. From this piece of history, we had to slow way down. Next week when we meet together, 
We're going to take it from the Reformation up to the present. And that will begin to talk about all the different denominations. Because once you launch out the concept of reform, everybody's got an opinion. And it just starts going crazy in America. And, and there's all these different factions and denominations. But as we begin tonight, I would like to begin in the Word of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, page 797 in the Bible's handed to you. 797. As you will see, this second part of church history I entitled, Here I Stand. And I entitled that because that is one of my favorite biographies on a man by the name of Martin Luther, who is credited with launching the Great Reformation. Now, it was his study into the book of Romans that ultimately got his blood moving in the idea of revolution, the idea of needed reformation. The idea that things were not as the Bible told them to be. When he looked at the church that he was a part of, that he loved desperately, he saw discrepancy. Therefore, he said, we need to make some changes. And that turned into a rather bloody event. But we begin by studying scripture so that we would know within our hearts, why is it that we keep believing what we believe? Why is it that we hold the views that we hold? Many of them he found in the book of Romans. So we just take a small snippet out of that. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. Would you pray for the word as we begin? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes that we might not only understand your word tonight, that Romans would strike at the very heart of who we are and who you are. But Lord, that we would also understand that in the movement of history, there were things that you did, things that you were behind, things that you were disappointed with. And along that way, somehow, some way, we made a return to you. And then, Lord, humans got involved and we kind of messed it up again. But Father, even in our fallible nature, even our weak states as human beings, even as prideful as we are, Lord, every generation, you've shown yourself faithful and you have risen up a remnant to return us to your heart. Would you do that again with us tonight in Jesus name? Amen. Romans chapter three, verse 20. Paul has just finished saying a famous phrase that we are all familiar with, which was there are none righteous, not one. Then he goes on to say this in verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, where it says his sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Who's he referring to? Jesus. This righteousness from God comes through what? Faith in who? Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified what? Freely by his what? Grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this. To demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? 
on that of observing the law? No, but on that of what? Faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1. As Paul continues on discussing this concept of faith and salvation, he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. When we left off last week, the Pope, the papacy, was waning in power. It was getting so corrupt and so politicized, everybody was sick of it. The Catholic Church was sick of the leadership that it had, and things were in really a bad place. Remember, there was so much corruption, there, were, there was murder and, and uh, uh, assassination and all this intrigue going on. People vying for the throne, buying certain things. Some had great hopes that somehow the East and West would unite and somehow there would be reform. Well, there was going to be reform, but it wasn't in the way anyone assumed. How should we view this thing called the Reformation, the break from the Catholic Church? Well, to the Protestants... It's one of the greatest times of history. Oh, we finally got it right. To the Roman Catholic Church, it was a revolt, a rebellion, a destruction of unity. In their estimation, though reforms needed to be made, the way that it was done would now break up the church into little tiny pieces and that would gain victory for the enemy. That they would no longer stand as one united front even though they themselves had already schismed into the Orthodox versus the Roman Catholic Church. But still, it was seen in a very negative light by many. And many died for its sake. Well, when we look at this and we begin to talk about the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism, we must keep a couple things in mind. The first one is this. Anytime you discuss another faith, another religion another denomination you must always do so in respect love and kindness because that is what we will be known for christians are to be known by their what their love not by the blowing their opponent out of the water but known by their love Therefore, when we treat these things, we must understand that though we are talking about how we are all sitting in a protestant church we must understand that there are many that are Catholic. There are many Catholics that believe in Jesus more intensely than we do. There are many that are alive in their faith. But when we go back and forth, many times there begins to be rock throwing and this idea of this animosity. Up to this point, the church hasn't even split. All their history is our history. Do you understand that? And we must own that. We must know that. Their dirty laundry, our dirty laundry. That's the way it goes. Once we begin to split... We then start shouting over the fence. Is that wise? Is that kind? As you begin to hear the layout, and I'm going to close tonight's message with literal a list of the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. As I close with that list, you need to realize not all of us in this church agree with the traditional Protestant view. You're going to go, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. 
Well, in the same way, you're going to go to your Catholic friends and go, you believe all this stuff? They're going to go, nope. Because the Catholic Church has changed over the centuries as well. So understand, we're going back in history, and we're going to examine one particular 200-year period, because that's where it all began. You cannot understand the background of the Reformation until you understand what was going on in the world scenario. But understand this, the fill in the blank in front of you. Because this is where it all gets personal. You want to distance this stuff and just go, we're studying boring history. I'm not a history person. No, 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 no. We're talking about your faith. We're talking about your God. And we're talking about a calling maybe God could place on your life right here, right now. The fill in the blank is this. Sometimes God raises up someone. Could be a man, could be a woman. But sometimes God raises up someone to say, enough is enough. That person will lead to reform. Understand this, the world situation, we had not seen such dramatic change flying across the world scene, perhaps in hundreds of years. But right then, in 1450, things just began to go crazy. All kinds of things began to move and shift. Think about it this way, mobility change. We moved as a global people from river-based to ocean-based, right? Because all of a sudden it used to be about the Tigris, the Euphrates. Now it was about, in 1492, Columbus sailed the what? Ocean blue, right? It's the idea that now we're going across from continent to continent. The whole world just opened up into one large community. That's going to change everything. Now we're mixing ideas with the whole rest of the world. There was political change. The Roman Empire broke down into nation states. Now you had localized governments and people made different decisions in different areas. We had economic change. There was a big shift from land ownership to money. All of a sudden, money became a big deal, whereas before it was all about what you owned and what land you inherited. There was social change. We went from a feudal concept, that's the lords and peasants, to the emergence of the middle class. In 1347, the bubonic plague struck Europe, and up to one-third of the entire population was decimated. Is that going to have an impact? Sure is. There was this change in the sciences, massive movements in mathematics, physics, uh, medicines. And there was a tremendous intellectual change. This is where you begin to see these emergence of the Renaissance era, where all of a sudden these brilliant minds began to come out all over the place. But they came out on a basis, what we now look back at as humanism. Humanism, we normally look at that and we go, oh, that's bad, that's negative, because that's all about man's more important than God. Hold on, not yet. Humanism at this time means we need to examine the humanities. Don't tell me how to live. Let me dive back to how things were done in the ancient world, is actually what it meant. As a matter of fact, in the religious world, they wanted to go back to the original manuscripts. They wanted to dive back into the Greek language to find out what Scripture meant. And the secular world, they began to dive back into Greek literature and listen to Aristotle and Plato. And all these guys got resurrected. And they began to think very individually. It was no longer about this collective, we do this as a nation. It was now, well, I'm going to do this. I don't know what you're going to do. And when the autonomy individualism comes in, everything's up for grabs. And everyone has no answers and a million questions. Does that sound familiar? 
When we shifted from the modern age to the postmodern age, what was the one thing you heard the most? There's no more absolute what? Truth. It's all up for grabs. Questions everywhere. Everybody's got questions within the church. Have you noticed this emergence of all these teachers questioning everything? Why are we doing church like this? Why are we don't? Why don't we do it like this? What about this? What about that? Everyone's writing books. Well, what about the atonement? Well, what about this? They're questioning everything. This is a very similar mindset and a paradigm shift. But there was more change. The printing press came into play. That took movable type and allowed people to mass produce and get literature into the hands of those that could read it was no longer only held in the aristocracy and sure enough there was three real major changes in religion i told you the first one was that the papacy began to wane in its power a lot of that had to do with what was called the great schism of the west here's what happened they were trying to unite everybody and so they thought well let's bring up a pope we don't like the pope that we currently have let's go ahead and adjust it well now they have two popes Then they said, well, great, which pope are we going to pick? Well, I like this one. I like this one. Well, let's solve it. Let's bring a new one in and kick out the other two. Now we got three popes. It's like, come on, people, really? This is solving our problem? And all of a sudden, the whole pope thing became a joke. Everyone was arguing with everybody else. The leadership was just crumbling. The second major shift in religion was that Constantinople in the east falls to Islam. That used to be the Mecca of Christianity in the East. Remember I told you the East and West separated? The church in the East got collapsed. It locked down because Islam stormed in with the Turks. And all of a sudden, the Orthodox Church quieted down. And then the third major movement was humanism and individualism entered into the church and captured the people's hearts. All of a sudden, phrases like the priesthood of all the believers started coming out. All of a sudden, different ideas of direct contact with God. I don't need a priest. I can start going directly to the Lord started showing up. Mystics cried out, simplicity of the gospel. Let's bring it back to what the early Christian church did. Forget all this pomp and circumstance. Can't we just go back? And they ran to the deserts and droves. Well, then one man was born by the name of Martin Luther. He was born in... 1483 and when he grew up there was a guy that was popular at the time that everybody respected everybody loved he wasn't necessarily on the catholic side of things he wasn't necessarily on the secular side of things even though he was a catholic himself his name was erasmus of rotterdam erasmus was one of those guys that dove back into the ancient world and he brought forward for the first time in europe a big focus on reading the Greek version of the Bible. And that began to change things because it used to be Latin. Now they can look at the Greek against the Latin and everyone started having questions. Wait a second, what's going on? These things don't completely line up. But Erasmus was a brilliant intellectual. And everybody in the world at that time in Europe respected this guy. What's Erasmus going to say next? What's he going to do next? And he was known as the father of humanism. And he began to get everybody moving towards this idea that reform needed to happen. So Martin Luther was raised in that environment. Listen to this young guy. He was born in 1483 in Germany. He entered college at 18, got his BA at 19, his master's at 22, and his doctorate at 29. That guy's flying. He did everything to the extreme. 
he came in, became a monk. And when he became a monk, he took it to the most extreme level. He now all of a sudden began to abstain from everything. And he was so extreme in that he did permanent damage to his body. It was like everything he did, he had to go all the way to the wall. He was a hard-headed man, very stubborn, very melancholy, very moody. He was prone to depression and anxiety. And all his life, he always suffered from this idea that God didn't love him. And he wrestled through it. It was so hard for him to understand how he, as a wretch, could ever be useful, could ever be valuable to God. And so he would try to do better and better and better as a monk and blew everybody else away. But he still was never peaceful. Then he began to read the Psalms and he found a suffering Jesus. Then he read Romans and he saw that even though he was a sinner, even while he was a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly and that he could be made right in the sight of God. He looked in Galatians and began to read about the freedom and the liberty in Jesus. And things began to open up and change. You know, he takes a pilgrimage to Rome. He wants to go see how his church is working out. And he was horrified at what he saw. He saw ruin and decay everywhere, and he just began to go ballistic. He decided he was going to leave the church completely. But he had a buddy in a nearby town back in Germany called Wittenberg. And this buddy was a professor at the university, and he said, you need to start reading the ancient church fathers, man. you got a complete wrong view of this church stuff. Okay, Rome is messed up right now, but get your mind out of that. You can't just walk away from the church. You're way too valuable. You're brilliant. Why don't you start teaching at the university? So he decides to teach at the university and becomes a professor. While he's there, he begins to examine all the ways that the Catholic Church that he saw, that he loved, he called himself a son of the church, had no desires whatsoever to break with the church. He begins to see that things aren't lining up and there's abuses happening and he's not okay with this. And at first he begins to say, well, no one's going to listen to me. Why are they going to care? So I'm going to write down all my thoughts and I'll share it with my colleagues. So he shared it with other professors. Then he shared it with his students and he said, what do you guys think? He said, how about we do an academic exercise? Let's write and put together a big list of all the things that are currently messed up, mostly centering around the idea of indulgences. So they wrote down 95 different ones. He begins to realize more people are interested in this concept, but he just wants to debate in the academic circle. So he takes them out and he nails them to the front of the door of the university. And they're called the 95 Theses. But his main issue was the selling of indulgences. What is indulgences? What's the selling of them? What do, anybody know what that means? It means you pay me money and I'll give you spiritual benefit. That's what it means. It means you cash it, cuff up a little bit of cash and I will make sure things go well for you spiritually. Anybody ever done that on TV? <laughs> the same stuff that angers you today angered him back then. He said, not on my watch. Absolutely not. If you have the power to do something good spiritually for somebody, you do not do it for profit to the place where you are harming people and gouging people. If you have the ability to do what you say, you need to do it for the right reasons. Well, it all came to a head because Pope Leo X, bad guy, not a good guy. Pope Leo X, really kind of a, a messed up man. He wanted to build a grand Rome, and he had this idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to finish St. Peter's Basilica. Have you guys ever seen a picture of that in Rome? That's where the Vatican is, the big church at the Vatican. I went there just a little while ago with my brother. We could walk into this place, literally 10 stories tall inside. It was just extraordinary. 
I mean, it was, I'm sitting there looking at maybe 300 feet high, and there's just mosaics. It's beautiful. He wanted to make it look amazing. So he found a guy who wanted to buy a position of archbishop. But people today don't buy positions of office. That's ridiculous. (laughs) That would lead to, like, impeachment or something. That's so weird. Immediately... He says, what, you want to be archbishop? Well, I want money. Why don't you just cough down some money to me and everything will work out okay. I'll get you the position. He said, all right, no problem. He said, well, how are you going to raise the money? Well, I'm going to get my local guys to start selling indulgences. So sure enough, a slimy snake oil salesman by the name of John Tetzel comes walking into Luther's town. And he's got his whole big signs up and everything, and he's going to sell indulgences. And his, was, his little motto was this. When a coin in the coffer rings, out a soul from purgatory springs. He promised that if you give me money, I can make you cleaner than when you got baptized. If you give me money, I will make you cleaner than pre-fall Adam. Ah. Luther said, I'm sorry, who are you again? You don't walk into my town and do that. And it started this massive debate. All of a sudden, people took all his Latin 95 theses, converted them into German, and began to pass them out everywhere. And Luther said, you need to get out of my town. Well, this got back. And sure enough, when you start messing with the Pope's people, you're messing with who? The Pope. So sure enough, they want to know. You better get in here. You better come up to Rome. And there's this big argument and everything. And so he's summoned to Rome. Now, everybody thinks that the Pope is going to kill Luther. And he probably would have. So a guy stepped in and backed him up. And he just got ridiculed by the cardinals and blah, 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 blah. Eventually, they had a truce. The truth was this. You don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. You leave me alone in Germany, you go hang out in Rome and do your own thing. They said, all right, we'll do that. Because his movements really started taking off, and it would have been a revolution. Then a man named John Eck shows up. John Eck wanted to get Luther's goat. So John Eck steps out, and he knows he can't attack Luther directly because that's a violation of the truth. So what does he do? He attacks his best friend and colleague in the college. He challenges him to a debate. Luther knows that he's never going to survive that debate. And he knows that he's just trying to get at him. So Luther steps up and he says, you want to debate? You debate me. And they began what's called the Leipzig debate. Eck versus Luther. Now, Eck is a great debate debater. And so what he does, is he steps out there. And even though he doesn't win every point, he gets Luther to say these things. The Bible supersedes the church. Oops. The church has erred. And when he says those two things, he immediately ties him back to John Huss. Who's John Huss? A guy a hundred years ago that was burned at the stake for being a heretic. Now what is Luther? A heretic. And that's what he wanted to accomplish. Well, sure enough, in 1520, Luther writes three of his most important writings, and he says these things. The Pope has no power over secular rulers, no power over Scripture. He says there are not seven sacraments. There's only three. He denies transubstantiation, which is the body and uh, the bread and the wine really, really becoming the literal body of Christ. He said that's not true. He cites the priesthood of all believers. They have direct access to God through Christ alone, not the church. And he's excommunicated by Pope Leo in writing. So John Eck comes walking into town. Hey, Luther, got here in my hand says, you're excommunicated. Luther said, really? Let me see that. Burn. 
He said, well, we're burning your books in Rome. He said, that's all right. You go back and tell your pope that. Well, that didn't go so hot because now you're challenging the Roman Empire. Whoops. All of a sudden, they call him up to what's called the Diet of Worms. They bring him up and they said, you must recant or we will excommunicate you from the Catholic Church. He said, I can't do that. I believe what I said. And when I said it, I meant it. This is all I got. Here I stand. Luther goes into seclusion for two years in hiding because they want to kill him. But meanwhile, his theology takes greater ground. This is what Luther taught. From a Catholic mindset, this was revolutionary. Here's what he said. The word of God is Jesus Christ himself. And wherever it's talked about in the Bible, it is the highest law on earth. It's bigger than the church. It's bigger than everything else. Now, the parts of Scripture that he didn't see too much about Jesus, he questioned a little bit. He said that man can never know God. Man can never find God. God has to reveal himself to man. He said that God gave the law to crush us and then his grace to lift us back up. He said that the mother church's view of baptism was not accurate. It's not just a sign of what Christ did, but it does have power to make us members of his body but it doesn't save us. He began to say things like, you don't need faith to enter the water because God has predestined you to be saved. Therefore, infants are okay to be baptized. He said that communion, you didn't get spiritual sanctification in it, but it did bring in power into the believer's life. It was not the repeated sacrifice of Jesus every time. It was not still Jesus' body after it was taken. But it's not just a sign either. Jesus is physically present or spiritually present as he unites into the communion. That's called co-substantiation. But then Luther got more and more popular and his protege, a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon, began to tell his story all over the place and get his teachings adopted everywhere. Well, sure enough, monks and nuns left convents. They got married. Worship simplified in the churches. German substituted for Latin. Masses of the dead were abolished. And as well as fasting days, abstinence days, those were all abolished. Laity could take communion. And then his followers started tearing down all the saint pictures off the walls of the churches. And Luther had to come out because everyone was going crazy. He comes out of hiding. He's like, guys, what are you doing? We're going way too far. Well, during all this chaos, everyone wants to know what the older man Erasmus thought. Sir Erasmus, what are you going to do with this guy? You're the most brilliant guy around. Luther respects you. Say something. Erasmus steps up and he doesn't want to start a reformation. He doesn't like the way things are. So he challenges Luther to a debate. He said, you and me go head to head. Free will versus predestination. Ah, that became a big deal. Even though they remained cordial after that debate, the separation became bigger and bigger. In 1525, Luther wrote perhaps his most important work on predestination called Bondage of the Will. In 1526, the next year, he married a woman by the name of Catherine von Bora. And then in 1529, persecution got really, really strong by the Catholic Church. So Luther and his team stepped up and they protested and they became known as Protestants. And that's where it all began. He died in 1546 in his early 60s. While that was going on in Germany, there was a man that rose up in Switzerland 
that was just like Luther. It was weird. You almost realize they're going side by side. They're growing up. They're thinking the same things, but they don't even know each other very well. They know of each other. And at some point they debated. But in general, God was raising up these men all over the place. This man's name was Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli was a... uh, Well, I just messed that name up. Ulrich Zwingli was a Swiss mercenary. He kills for a living. And as he grew up, it was this hardcore Swiss army. They knew that if you want to get something done, pay these guys, they'll go in and decimate everybody. But the more war he saw, the more he knew that there had to be a different way. And he embraced his Catholic faith and began to examine into the Bible himself. And he began to lead in a reformation. He broke with Rome in a rather big way. He argued against indulgences. He said the lack of biblical support for priestly celibacy was unacceptable. He said that the laws of fasting and abstinence were wrong. So Rome sent someone out to challenge him in his own hometown of Zurich. He debated them and won. And the Catholic Church said, all right, if we can't beat you, you can keep preaching. So he kept preaching. Now, he agreed with Luther on just about everything, but they disagreed on a few key issues. One of those was why predestination is right. Luther argued that predestination is right because man is so sinful, there's nothing he could do. Zwingli said, no, 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 that's not it. It's predestination because there's nothing out of the control of God that's different. He also said baptism doesn't wash away sins. Now, I'm not going to go as far as the other guys, but he said, I view it like circumcision. You do it looking forward to the day that you will be made righteous. He said that communion, unlike Luther, where there's some inner divine action going on, he said, no, it's merely a sign and a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing on earth that can save you or bring you spiritual power. They tried to unite in 1529, but Zwingli and Luther clashed over only one issue. That was the issue of communion. And that's when Luther said, we are not of the same spirit. And they broke their ways. Switzerland began to reform, and as Zwingli took control, he made this law. If it's not explicitly said in Scripture, throw it out. Well, the problem is, there's a lot of stuff that's not explicitly said in Scripture. So a lot was thrown out. And he began to rule in a very strong way. As he ruled Zurich, eventually the Catholic Church and Charles V hated his guts, and they marched on the city of Zurich. To try to buy time because they were caught off guard, he marched out into battle first with his men, and he was killed in battle. The next month, they signed a peace treaty, and the local nation states, the local areas, could pick whether they wanted to be Protestant or Catholic. He didn't die for nothing. But while he was still alive in Zurich, a group came up to him, and they said, Ulrich, I love your reform. It's awesome, but you're not taking it far enough. You've got to go more extreme, man. We're called the Brethren. We hang out together, and we think that there's a bunch of stuff that you need to do. First of all, there's got to be far more separation of church and state. We've got to simplify this stuff. You've got to reject that whole infant baptism thing. You have to have faith before you walk in the water. And total pacifism. That's what Jesus teaches. What does he do for a living? He was a mercenary. He's like, total pacifism? All right, in a time of reform, that ain't going to happen, guys. So I'm sorry, I can't get on with you. You guys can go ahead and do your own thing, but I'm not going to lead you. So in the town square that same year, where it was a law that you could not baptize an adult 
who had been baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church lest you be committed to death. They baptize an ex-priest. He then baptizes the next guy, and they keep baptizing all the people that were with them. And everyone around them saw it and were shocked in horror, and they called them Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. How dare you rebaptize? They're like, I didn't rebaptize anything. I just don't think infant baptism is legit. I'm getting baptized for the first time. And the Anabaptist movement began. At the beginning, they were total pacifists, and they just got demolished. Everybody hated them. Nobody liked them. Even the Reformed guys, the Lutheran guys, they didn't even like them. The Catholic Church didn't like them. Nobody liked them. Why? Here were their views. They thought that predestination was completely bogus. They said, what an excuse for your sin. Why don't you take responsibility for your sin? You know what? You violated against God. Fix it. Live a different way. Live a holy Christian life. Don't just blame it all on God. They said that communion was merely symbols. They said that the church needed to be all about reading the word and teaching becomes central. And we're going to go back to a literal interpretation of the Bible. They said no infant baptism because you have to have genuine personal conversion before you walk in that water. They had strict discipline by ban. They believed in the priesthood of all believers and they believed that the godly would suffer persecution. So the more persecution they hit, the more they were convinced they were doing the right thing. And they believed really strong that Jesus was going to come any time. Well, originally they were all pacifists, but the more and more the persecution hit, some of them went revolutionary. They started fighting back. Then it started getting crazy. They had a bunch of leaders that would rise up and they started going, Jesus is coming back. And they'd all run to one city, Munster. And then it wasn't that one. Oh, no. So they all ran over to a different one. Jesus is coming back here. They storm the city and then they get besieged on the outside by the Catholic Church. And there's a big battle and people are dying and eventually just gets wiped out. And then one man rises up from all the ashes and he reduces it back to simplicity. His name was Menno Simmons. He said, I believe in the equality of people. I believe in simplicity of the gospel. I believe in simple dress. I believe in a simple life. And Menno began the Mennonites, which you remember. After him came in his same line was a man named Jacob Amon, who started the Amish. And that's where they came from. And then the last major man came up on the scene. His name was John Calvin. Anybody ever heard of the Calvinists? They're kind of a big deal. Born July 10th, 1509 in France to a devout Catholic family. He has a radical conversion in 1533, and he said he abandoned the papacy. He went into exile in Basel, Switzerland, just to write. He wanted to write a systematic idea on how to live the Protestant faith. And he was just a student, a quiet man, didn't want to do anything big. And he never believed he was anything new. He thought he was a Lutheran. He's like, I completely side with Luther. I believe everything that he said. I only got a few slight adjustments, but I'm a Lutheran. And he believed it strongly. He never thought he was revolutionary. He never thought he was radical. And a year and a half into his newfound Protestant faith, he begins to write one of the greatest documents in the Protestant movement called Calvin's Institutes. If you look at them now, it's two huge volumes of systematic theology, which had never been written before. And then he wanted to go write more in a place called Strasbourg, so he crosses through, and on the way he spends the night in a city called Geneva. While he's there, the head leader comes to him in the night, and he said, you're the guy that wrote institutes, right? He said, yeah. You've got to be a leader here, man. We just went Protestant. It's awesome. 
There's going to be a lot of revolution. I mean, now we're all Protestant and everyone hates us and we might get into these battles. You've got to help me lead these people. And Calvin said, I'm a scholar, dude. I don't fight. I'm not interested in getting angry. I just want to be mellow and I just want to do my writing. All right? It's not going to work out. And then he got challenged. The man said, why don't you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about someone else? Why don't you step up and do something about it? Uh, cut Calvin to the heart. And he said, all right, I'm in. And he became one of the major leaders of Geneva. And he began to implement his teachings. He began to implement Lutherism. He began to implement all these ideas that he and his buddy began to do. And all of a sudden, they began to see, be seen as radicals. The people started going, well, I love the idea, but I don't want to live this way. Come on, guys, you're not going to take it that extreme, are you? And they banned them from the city. He got kicked out of his own city. But he's a different man now. He goes to Strasbourg and for three years has peace, gets married, begins to write some more. But then Geneva changed in leadership again. He and his buddy went back and they began to lead that city with all their radical reform. And he got really extreme. As a matter of fact, there was one man that he banned, he exiled, he excommunicated him right out of the city for one reason alone. He believed that Song of Solomon wasn't an allegory about God and the church. He thought it was really about erotic love. Calvin said, not on my watch, you're out. Then another man came in, a heretic. The Catholic Church had already deemed him a heretic. He was sneaking through Geneva. Calvin found out about him. He said, who are you again? He said, what did you do wrong? Well, I don't believe in the Trinity. Oh, really? I can list out 28 things that are wrong with you. You were to be beheaded. And the whole city rose up and they said, beheading? No way, let's burn him alive. They burned him alive. And all of Geneva became known as the strict Lutheran hardcore city. You don't mess with Calvin. Well, that's a very different man than the student that he began to be. Well, he opened up the Geneva Academy to teach his teachings throughout Geneva. And it was ran by one of his best friends named Theodore Beza who would take over for him. And Theodore Beza was the one that started the whole idea of Calvinism. If you think about that, it was not Calvin. He was mostly into Luther stuff. But here's his key teachings. He said that mankind is hopeless, that our sin has left us impossible to reach God. We are totally depraved. We have no way of being saved. God must come down to us. He said that God gave us his word, his son, as a revelation of who he is. That even though he reveals himself in general to all the world, to the elect, he has revealed himself in a saving way. He said scriptures are the only authority on earth. He said that mankind lost faith, integrity, and corrupted their intellect and will in the fall, but Jesus can heal that. He said that the function of the law is not to give us information, but to render us inexcusable so that we must receive grace. He said the Old Testament and New Testament are good because they point us to Christ, and that Jesus Christ has two natures but one person. He was fully God and fully man. He said the marks of a true church are preaching the word and administration of the sacraments, which are baptism and communion. He said that communion is a middle position between Zwingli, just a sign, and Luther, some spiritual adjustment of power. He said Christ is present in communion, but only spiritually. It strengthens us, but only spiritually. He said that baptism is a true sign and confession before others and a devoured for your whole life. It covers all your post-baptismal sins. And then he said infant baptism is legit. 
because we're predestined has nothing to do with whether or not we choose anything. So, he thought he was Lutheran. The Lutherans didn't think so. They looked at his teaching and they said, you're not one of us. He said, no, really, I am. No, you're not. We're going to call you Reformed. And that's when the Reformed movement began. So as we move to America, when everything begins to ship over and you begin to see the Mayflower land and the settling of Jamestown, and as America begins to get up and running as a nation, you have four major movements that take hold. The first one is Luther and Melanchthon's Lutheranism. That's settled in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the Dakotas up in the northwest, north, uh, what am I trying to say? Midwest, thank you. Then you have the Reform, that's Zwingli and Calvin. They settled in Michigan and in some of the South. Then you have the Anabaptists with the Mennonites and the Amish, and they settled in West Pennsylvania and in some of the South. And then there was a slight adjustment on the Catholic view called Anglican that a man by the name of Kramer and a man named Barnes brought to America. But when they got to America, they changed its name from Anglican to Episcopalian. And they settled in the New England area. You now have four major movements. A subset of one of those movements are guys called the Puritans. And we'll study them next week. So what do we do with this? Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the Catholic Church is in a tailspin. What is happening with all these people? Why is everybody revolting? Why does everybody have a problem? We need to know, what do we believe? And so they held a major council called the Council of Trent in 1546. And they said, we will write down and codify what it is we believe. And they wrote down a bunch of stuff that I'm about to read to you. Now, is it what your Catholic friends today believe? Not really. Vatican II, which you'll learn about next week, made huge adjustments and the Catholic Church went upside down. They began to go, what are you doing? Why are you changing this? For hundreds of years we believe this stuff. Why are you changing it? It's very different today. But most of these hold true that I'm going to share with you. They returned the authority of the Pope and they gave him more power. And they said, this is what we believe. So listen to this list. If you've ever wondered... Am I Catholic? Am I Protestant? What am I? Well, go through this checklist in your mind. These are the traditional views. It may not be that every Protestant believes this stuff in this room. It may not be that every Catholic believes this stuff in this room. But if you want to go traditional, here's how it sounded. When it came to Scripture, the Protestants believed in sola scriptura, which meant Scripture alone. It's the only authority for mankind that God has given them for teaching. The Catholic view is tradition is equal to Scripture. The argument is simply this. The church wrote the Bible. So, it's equal. The Protestants said no. The gospel created the church. So the gospel has supremacy over the church. Those are the two arguments. When it comes to the Apocrypha, the extra books, the books in the middle, do you all realize the Catholic Bible has far more books than ours does? That's the writings in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the Apocrypha. Protestants rejected it. Catholics affirmed it. When it comes to original sin, what happened with Adam? The Protestants said, we're totally depraved. We could never save ourselves. The Catholic Church said, no, we were just corrupted. That's all. There's still good in us. When it came to human will, 
The traditional Protestant view is that we're in bondage to sin and we can't get out of it, whereas the Catholic view is that we are free to do spiritual good. When it came to predestination, the Protestants said God decides it all. The traditional Catholic version is he didn't decide it all, he just knows it all. When it comes to atonement, the Protestants said Christ paid it all on the cross. The traditional Catholics said, well, Christ just prepped us so we could receive spiritual blessings later. When it came to the grace of God, the Protestants said, common to all, but the elect are saved. The traditional Catholics said, when you get baptized, you get the ability to start doing good. You get started on the right path. That's called provenient grace. And then when you obey God and do the right things, it becomes efficacious. It becomes effective for you and you are saved. When it comes to good works, the Protestants said only God does good works. All our good works doesn't amount to anything. The Catholics said, no, it gives you spiritual power and sanctification and healing when you do good works. When it came to regeneration, becoming new or born again, the Protestants said, the Holy Spirit does it only in the elect. And the traditional Catholics said, no, it comes through baptism as an infant. When it came to justification, the Protestants said, it is an act of God alone that justifies us. Catholics said, in baptism, you get total forgiveness of your sins, but you can lose that when you commit mortal sin. So you must do penance to get it back. And ultimately, you may have to burn off some in purgatory. When it came to church, the Protestants said, we never know who's saved. We're all mixed up. There's some that are saved, some that are not. The Catholic Church said, anyone in our house will be a saint or they will be removed. You are either holy or you don't belong here. Because we will purify you with the elements. If you take mass, we will make sure that you are holy. If you confess, you will be holy. If you do it right, you will be holy. For the sacraments, the Protestants said it's a means of grace if you receive it with faith. The Catholics said it conveys justifying and sanctifying grace and can save you. When it came to purgatory, the Protestants said nope. Catholics said yep. When it came to the priesthood... The, the, the Protestants said, we're all priests in Jesus Christ. We're all equal in the sight of God. And the Catholics said, no. God has always set up a hierarchy. And there are priests and there are laymen. And they are our mediators between us and God. So where do you stand? Here's the question. Do you know what you believe? So I push you to the wall. Let's say now all of a sudden you need to lead reform. Do you know what you're talking about? Do you have any idea? When I'm in error, are you examining that in Scripture? Are you making sure that what is being taught and what is being promoted in the churches today is legit and accurate? If I asked you why you're a believer, do you know why? Have you ever taken any time to consider it, to know why it is you believe what you believe? Are you still trying to trail on to the idea that, I don't know, I think that Jesus is just a good idea? What happens when persecution comes down? When are you going to know when to take a stand and when to sit down? If we don't know our scripture we don't know what we're talking about if we don't know what we're talking about we will go into all kinds of weirdness therefore i believe the responsibility is on every believer in this family to know the word of god amen let's close in prayer heavenly father you've taken us such a long way that, Lord, I know that you have children all over the world and so many different wacky views. And, Lord, we're some of them right here. 
that, Lord, we just pray tonight that you would show us yourself, that you'd continue to reveal to us what it is in your word that you want us to follow, how you want us to live, what you want us to believe. Lord, make us students hungry for your word that we might be able to understand and to know and that the schemes of the devil would not prevail. Lord, we pray that you would allow us, before knowing all the right things, that we would begin to live in a loving way. That it wouldn't be about academics and being right in a debate, but it would be about living as you would live. Oh, change us from the inside out and allow us to know you more and worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.